Now, if you're not quite awake yet, you will be soon enough because today's story is intriguing and riveting to say the least. You've already got a sense of that as you heard it read aloud. Once again, we encounter the prophet Elijah, a mighty man of God. Last week, he was involved in the salvation of one Syrian, a guy called General Naaman. This week, he's involved in the salvation of many Syrians. That's how chapters 5 and 6 fit together. And among other things, they show us how God engages with humanity at large. See, we're learning that while the Israelites in the Old Testament are God's chosen people, they aren't God's only chosen people. We all are. We all can be. To make sense of the captivating events in today's text, we need to read and unpack verses 8 to 23 together. A lot of preachers don't do this. They tend to focus only on the first part, which ends at verse 16. And then they tell you that 2 Kings 6 is a message that the Lord surrounds His people forever. That's true, of course, but if you stop there, you miss out. You get shortchanged. Don't worry, that's not going to happen today. I will not subject you to that type of disappointment. You're going to get all the glory of this passage this morning. Now, on this note, here's my stab at condensing the major thrust and theme of today's passage. I like to put it like this. Some gain sight, and others are blinded so that everyone can see. Some gain sight, others are blinded so that everyone can see. Let's make a start so you can see for yourself what I mean. If you give your attention again to verses 8 through 14, they set the stage for everything that happens. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read them again, but we are going to stroll through and I'm going to elaborate a bit. The scenario here shouldn't be all that unfamiliar to us. It still happens. In fact, it's happening right now all over the world, including in modern-day Syria. Situation of territorialism, of conquest, of warring, of conflicting interest. That's what was happening in Israel in about 845 B.C. when the events in this text transpired. And it's not just tit for tat. People were dying. Communities were being ripped apart. Families torn asunder. That's precisely how the little Israelite girl... We read about her in chapter 5 last week, ended up as a slave in Naaman the Syrian's house. Now at this juncture in 2 Kings, the Syrians have the upper hand in terms of battling. But the Israelites have a secret weapon. There's a prophet in the land. We learn in verses 9 and 10 that this prophet has some sort of supernatural foreknowledge of Syrian military strategy. It's as if he's a fly on the wall in the war room of the Syrian king. And for that very reason, the ambushes and raids that the Syrians are plotting against Israel continue to get sabotaged. Look at verse 10. It says that that happened uh, more than once or twice. In Hebrew, that's a, sort of a colloquial expression, and let's just say it's an understatement. Who needs an army when you've got a prophet? Now, unsurprisingly, the king of Israel is perplexed and enraged by the fact that the Israelite army continues to elude him. Look at his words in verse 11 to his to his men, his soldiers, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Right? That's actually not the best translation of that phrase. More accurately, the Hebrew says, is any one of us against the king of Israel? It's sarcasm. He's irate. Everyone on his staff is getting a polygraph. He thinks there's a mole, but his lieutenants know better. There's not a mole. There's a man of God. He is named in verse 12 for the first time. And from here on out, Elisha, that's the prophet, dominates the story. See, the real power in all these events isn't the Israelite army or the Syrian army. It's God. It's the living God working through this particular prophet. 
Now with regard to all of his setbacks, the king of Syria very expectedly ventures out to capture the one who has been capturing and disclosing all of his military strategies and secrets. Ironically, as verse 13 implies, in trying to see where Elijah is hiding, the king doesn't seem to see that Elijah might see him coming because he's been seeing it all along. There's a lot of word plays in this text in the Hebrew. In due course, it is learned that Elijah is bunked up in a place called Dothan. That's a hilltop village. So the Syrian military treks over there and surrounds the place by cover of night, and we're left wondering, has Elijah lost his sight? The Syrians seem to have cast a net over this prophet, or so they think. And then the morning comes. Glance at verses 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, he went out, and behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city. And he said, Alas, my master, what shall I do? And his master said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elijah prayed, and he said, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he might see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of this young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Elijah's servant dutifully wakes up and trots down the front walk to pick up the Dothan son for his master, but when he looks up, he nearly leaps out of his slippers. He almost has a heart attack while he runs back into the house. Meanwhile, Elijah is slumbering on in tranquility, pressing snooze every six to seven minutes. And his servant comes in, his unnerved servant comes into the bedroom and shakes him awake, and he simply says, do not be afraid, in a voice kind of like Don Lewis's. That's how I imagine it. <laughs> do not be afraid. Why? Verse 16, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. You see, this servant sees lions encircling for the kill, but Elisha sees that those lions are on chains. He has some sort of spiritual sight that his servant lacks. But with a short prayer, we read that in verse 17, the servant gains sight, that spiritual blindness melts away, and we have the first miracle. Now, I want to suggest that this miracle, this event, speaks volumes to us. Let me explain. It's not just the Syrians that are blind to the reality of God. Right? It's actually one of God's own. And, and not someone who's part of God's people in a nominal sense, right? The servant of Elijah would have been a very spiritually serious person, right? Someone deeply committed to God, a man knowledgeable in the faith. Yet he's also got cataracts, spiritually speaking. Folks, this little incident confronts us with the fact and the truth that even people who know the Lord can carry spiritual blindness. Not just the Syrians, not just the people out there not in church this morning, but also many of us in here too. How do we recognize our cataracts or the fact that we have them? I think the answer is in verse 16. We fail to see that those who are with us are more than those who are against us. We fail to see that God is a reality greater than all others. Not in a general, vague sense. That doesn't do any good to anybody. In a specific sense. In our particular fears. In our particular anxieties. That's what happens here, right? Elijah's servant, he knows about God's salvation. He's read his scriptures. But in this moment, he's unable to see. It's functionally meaningless to him. That's why he freaks out. His panic exposes a certain thinness in faith. For faith, mature faith at least, is a refusal to panic. Elijah's good and godly servant needs more sight. So do we. We all do. Especially those who think they don't. That's the telltale sign that you've got serious spiritual blindness. Do not be self-deceived. 
And let me recontextualize this a little bit. What, what might spiritual blindness look like for us, 21st century Vancouverites? I think it, it can happen. I think it can manifest when we simply accept the definitions of reality on offer, the perspectives that we have been conditioned into by a late scientific, democratic, capitalist culture. They surround us. This is a, we're fish. This is the fishbowl. We soak them up. They become our presumed categories for making sense of everything. What if the categories don't line up with reality? What if the definitions of what's real that our culture gives us actually function not just to disclose reality, but also to obscure it and even impede it? Based on what St. Paul says in chapter 1 of the book of Romans in the New Testament, we should expect that to be the case. Sometimes the glasses we wear obscure our vision. For example, most people in our culture, most of us, myself included, we're empiricists. Not that we necessarily use that word, hi, I'm Roger, nice to meet you, I'm a pastor and an empiricist. That's not how we use it, but we are empiricists. We're children of Francis Bacon, metaphorically speaking, and he made a very good breakfast, by the way. That means that we distrust things, the existence of things that we cannot see, cannot easily see. That's empiricism. Now, of course, a lot of good has come from it. It's behind a lot of modern science. But here's the thing. Empiricism cannot validate itself as the exhaustive category for reality. Therefore, to be exclusively empiricist, as someone I was talking to on Facebook last week said she is, to be exclusively empiricist is to risk blindness. Blindness to the existence and presence and work of a God who can't be stuffed like dough into our Christmas cookie cutters. Are you willing to entertain this thesis? Are you willing to doubt the way you and I have been conditioned to see? Contrary to certain impressions, Christians aren't sheep who blindly follow. We're actually called to be critically attuned to reality, to examine and critique what is otherwise taken for granted without much thought into it. We see, but we need to pray for sight. That's the paradox of these verses. And on this occasion, in response to Elisha's prayer, the servant's blindness dissolves. He sees with new eyes. That's verse 17. Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And by the way, the Hebrew here is actually contrasted to the Hebrew of verse 14. The king of Syria is literally said to have a horse in the Hebrew and some chariots. The Lord has horses and chariots of fire because God's a runner. The servant in this moment gets a glimpse of God's power. And it allows him, to quote the old preacher C.H. Spurgeon, this glimpse of God's power allows him to share in the calm, quiet, unflummoxed state of mind which Elisha himself enjoys. Who doesn't want that? I mean, a lot of people spend tons and tons of money on psychotherapy to get that, right? God's glad we do that because God wants to give us that. Will you let him give you that? That's the question. That's what God offers. But God doesn't just want the servant and us to be aware of his power. He also wants all of us to see how he uses his power. That's the million-dollar question. He's got the power, but how's he going to use it? And that's also an essential part of the spiritual sight that we need. We're going to come back to this shortly. For now, let's go ahead and transition uh, to the ones who become blind, the ones who become blind. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So the Lord struck them with blindness in accordance with that prayer. And Elijah said to them, This is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And then he led them into Samaria. 
And to get a sense of what happens in this moment, there are a couple things we need to look at. First of all, the assault, and second, the effect of the assault. The assault and the effect of the assault. Look again at verse 18. In English, you misleadingly get the impression that the Syrians swarm down on Elijah, who then prays for God to defend him. That's actually not exactly what happens. The Hebrew text says something slightly different. In this moment, God's not on the defensive, he's on the offensive. You remember that Elijah and his servant are staying in Dothan, which is a hilltop village. So the Syrian armies cannot come down to get them because it's a hilltop village. In fact, what's being said here is that the angelic host, those chariots of fire, come down to strike the Syrians. That's what's happening. With Elijah's prayer, this sort of celestial army descends on the adversaries of God and God's people, but they don't strike them down, they strike them blind. They strike them blind. Blindness is the effect of the assault. Now let's ponder this. Based on verse 19 and what follows, you can see there's a little bit of confusion about it. If the Syrians' eyes were totally closed, they'd probably be flailing about madly. I mean, if, if things went pitch black for us, surrounded by enemies, that's what we'd be doing. We'd be flailing around madly. But that's not what happens. And in verse 19 and 20, it, we were told that these blinded soldiers are capable of following Elisha, which means that their blindness, to put it technically, is not a form of total ocular occlusion. In fact, the Hebrew that's used here, which is used only one other time in the Old Testament, Genesis 19, does not refer to the utter deprivation of sight. It means to be bedazzled, to be dazed, to be befuddled. The Lord's army has struck the Syrian battalion with a distortion of perception. That's what's going on here. And part of that distortion is that they don't even know they have it, which is why they have all of a sudden forgotten that they're in Dothan, even though they knew they were in Dothan. And it's why that they uh, agree to docilely follow Elisha, who is their target. You know, so they, they, it's like they see Elijah, but they don't. And so they end up going with Elijah to find Elijah. Who's the dummy now? Right? Yeah, get him, God. Yeah. That's the flesh speaking, by the way, because that's not at all what God does. That's the second miracle. Those who see have been made blind. What's this about? This is the, this is the groundwork being laid for new sight. You see, God has not intervened into this situation to annihilate the Syrians, which is probably what the Israelites would have wanted, but that's not what he's done. He's intervened to save them. If you have a tumor you have to go get surgery, you have to be cut. Now from one vantage, to be, have your body cut up doesn't seem like it's good for you, right? It doesn't seem like it promotes life. But it does, we know this. That's kind of like what's happening here. It's an affliction, this blindness is an affliction that leads to life. That's what God's doing. God does this. He famously did it in the New Testament with a guy called Saul, known to us as Paul. You read about that in the book of Acts chapter 9. Saul was attempting to assault God's people. He was on his way to another town that started with the letter D. It was Damascus. And while he was on his way to Damascus, the Lord descended upon him and struck him. What, what was that? What happened? Let me read you from the book of Acts. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, and they led him into Damascus. Now, the larger aim of this dramatic intervention by God was not to crush and torment Saul. It wasn't to blind him permanently. Rather, the objective was to give him sight, to open his eyes to true reality, the reality of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because that happened, the world has never been the same. In fact, that's part of the reason we're here today, and I am glad to see you.
In 2 Kings 6, just like Acts chapter 9, we're witnessing what I like to call a divine inversion, a switcherooski. God loves to do this. In these two cases, the inversions are precipitated by a form of sight deprivation, and the immediate outcome is that the powerful are made powerless, the strong turn out to be weak. Switcherooski. God is stripping away one perspective in order to make room for a new and better one. By the way, that's why the befuddled Syrian soldiers aren't just left like zombies wandering around Dothan, right? This, all of this, this intervention isn't just about Elisha's escape, right? He could have walked away unscathed, but he doesn't. Instead, he walks away with a battalion following him. Something more is going on here. Do you see? This isn't just prophet protection. God is moving to lead people in a different way, and not just geographically, as we'll see. As I said earlier, the chief function of the first and the second miracle isn't just to leave us gaping and gawking, right? They're actually instrumental. They're handmaidings, handmaidens for the great miracle of this passage, the third miracle. And before we talk about that, however, I want to pause briefly and just reflect on the miracles that we've, we've just read about, the first and the second miracle. Probably some questions some of you may be having about this, questions I've had myself. Now, g given that this is an urbane and sophisticated crowd, I'm sure that there's some eyeballs rolling as we read about these supernatural events, right? I want to take that bull by the horns. It's reasonable, I think, to assume that we struggle with this, right? In our late scientific age, don't we now know better about these types of stories, these miracles? This isn't plausible, right? This is just the stuff of legend. That's what the critics say. In our part of the world, in our culture, that type of thinking is pretty commonplace. It goes back to something called the Enlightenment, where we supposedly woke up to reality. And it was during that time that brilliant minds like David Hume concluded that miracles were bogus because they violated the laws of nature. How did Hume reach that conclusion? It's a good question, eh? Let me tell you a story that's telling. Many of you will know another great mind from that period, Blaise Pascal. It just so happened that Pascal had a niece who carried a terrible organic foul-smelling eyesore. And his niece was instantly and publicly healed at a monastery. Of course, news spread about this, and the royals sent all the best doctors to examine it and verify it, and it seems like it really was a miracle. Hume knew about this. He wrote about it. In his reflections, however, he dismisses it. On what grounds? On the basis of his conviction that miracles don't happen. That's what he says. That's the extent of his argument. That's called circular argumentation. It's not open to challenge even by a fact. More bluntly, however, I think that that is bias, which leads me to the real assertion I want to put before you at this moment. I think that sometimes our intense incredulity towards the miracles that we read about in the Bible or hear about is perhaps linked more with cultural prejudice than we care to admit. Miracle reports redound around the world right now, right? But they're often not accepted in our part of the world. We know better, and we will enlighten everybody else in due course. That's ethnocentrism. That's prejudice. That is intellectual imperialism. And I thought we were past that kind of stuff in a progressive city like Vancouver. If you struggle with the miracle reports in Scripture, that's okay. I have too. But before you just dismiss them... Maybe you should examine, as I have done myself, why it is so easy and so tempting to do that. Is it really scientific or is it bias? I'm going to leave that question with you. For now, let's go on to the feast. Look at the last chunk, verse 20 and 21. 
As soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And so the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said, Elijah, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He asked it twice. He's giddy. He wants to strike them down. Wowzers. The Syrians have reached their desired destination. They've attained their great goal. They are now face to face with the king of Israel. There he is. They even got there in a very un with some very un unlikely help. Elijah. Of course, things haven't panned out as they expected. They haven't arrived as an invading army, but rather as, as a helpless band of beggars. And once again, the question looms, the same one that Elijah's servant was left with earlier. God's got this power, but how's he going to use it? To what end? To what end? Well, we know what the king of Israel thinks. It's plain in verse 21. Let's annihilate them. Right? Let's dismantle our nemesis. They're fish in a barrel, and he wants to shoot them. Easiest, surest military victory he'll ever have. And you can rest assured that the Syrians would have done the very same thing if the positions had been switched. To be honest, it would be nearly impossible for any of the guys in this story to imagine an alternative. It's very hard to think outside the box you're in. True for us, too. As with many in the world today, the Syrians and the Israelites of this time are defined by definitions of reality that have come to them out of the brokenness of creation. That's how the Bible maps it. That definition of reality, among other things, carries this mantra, survival of the fittest, which is precisely why what happens in verse 22 and 23 is so utterly, astoundingly unpredictable. Look at those two verses, verse 22 and 23. Elijah answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Rather set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids to Israel. The king of Israel doesn't have his way because a more excellent way is going to unfold. God's going to show everybody, including us right now, how he uses his power, how he deploys his power, and it should serve present awe and future astonishment. One commentator says it's a summons to embody a different world. Amen. And that different world is a better world. It's a world where enemies aren't slaughtered. They're regaled with a feast. What Elijah counsels here is scandalous. It's eye-popping. And you better believe it's from God. Because none of the human actors in this situation would ever have come up with this option. But that's not how the world works. But God is not a product of our broken world. So put away your guns and get out your generosity. We're not interested in harpooning. We're going to do hospitality. We're going to have a party because there's more than one way to deal with your adversaries. There's more than one way. There's more than one path to peace. Let me show you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's how St. Paul puts it in the New Testament. And just like Elijah, he knew God well. Last week, I was sideswiped by bugs, more specifically by a short documentary on bugs and their culinary merits. In defiance of all of my intuitions, all of my sensibilities, I learned that bugs are an effective and promising source of nutrition. Crickets, they say, are better than beef or chicken, filled with iron, calcium, and protein, and lots of other vitamins and things. Uh, they can even be ground up into flour, which makes very nice and gluten-free chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> and finally, a point not to be missed on Vancouverites, Bugs require far fewer resources 
and cows and chickens and pigs to raise. So they leave a, a bug-sized carbon footprint. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> the future is healthy, tasty, and eco-friendly, my friends. Who would have imagined? Not me. I would never have imagined that. Of course, as I, as I watched that video, I was a bit of, in a bit of disbelief. On the one hand, it was disgusting, but yet at the same time, it was, it was bizarre. It was intriguing. That's exactly how God's intervention in verses 22 and 23 would have been felt. No doubt there were people there, maybe some of the Israelite soldiers. They were disgusted, right? We know how to deal with our enemies, and this is not how you do it. You kill them, not your cow to feed them filet. I'll serve them a feast. But it's also intriguing and promising. I mean, think about it. In the end, there's no blood spilled. Some more families ripped apart. Cycles of violence familiar have been disrupted. God is showing a more excellent way. And against the norm of that time and of our own time too, it's unpredictable, it's weird, but it's also glorious. See, God outmaneuvers the enemies of his people in order to bless them, not crush them. That's how God strikes his enemies. We're going to have to redefine the word strike. The big feast is the greatest miracle of this passage. It's the culmination of God's intervention. It's, it represents the thing that God wants everybody to see. The larger aim of his entry into this messy, ugly situation. Very different from what the Syrian king or the Israelite king would have done on their own. You see, for all of God's massive and inscrutable power, he is the Lord of peace. His son is the prince of peace. And his intervention overcomes death and destruction and deprivation. The things that often accompany our counterfeit efforts to find peace in this world. When all is said and done, God's intervention is effective. That's the end of verse 23. And the Syrians did not come again on raids to the land of Israel. In the years following, the decades, of course, other Syrians came. But you better believe the Syrians who were there that day never came back. They've been changed. They had an encounter with the living God, and nothing will ever be the same again. So too for Elijah's servants. So too for the Israelites who are there. That's what God's grace does, and it's all over this passage. Some were given sight. Others blinded that all might eventually see. Do you see? Late President John F. Kennedy once observed that the great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, the deliberate, contrived, and dishonesty and lies, but rather the myth, persistent, persu per persuasive, and unrealistic outlooks. He says, too often we hold fast to the cliches and habits of our forebears, and we subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. What does that mean? It means that we think this is the way the world has to be. We can't imagine anything different and better. That's how the world is, according to the Bible, and it's called darkness. That's the word the Bible used for it. It's why the desires of the nations are never fully satisfied. Desires for peace, for sufficiency, for glad days. God knows this. That's why he's always breaking in to help. And here's the thing. The greatest miracle of this passion, the, 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 this, this passage, the feasts between people stuck in antagonism, it's actually a small intervention. I mean, it's hugely meaningful for Syria and Israel in this ancient context, but it's small, which is why even while we can marvel at it, while we can celebrate it, we're still left longing, longing for more, longing for a bigger version of the same thing. We yearn for more of God's light to shine into the darkness, our darkness, in an even brighter form. 2 Kings 6 is a candle. We need a sun to cast out the darkness. 
part of this, this is the groaning and longing that are part of the Advent season. But now, according to the Bible, that groaning's always got to be counterbalanced with the sight of light. Not, not light we just hear about, not light we just remember, but light we stand in. Life that in light that encounters us. Light that can transform the darkness of our world and the darkness within us. But don't take my word for it. That's the radiant declaration of John's Gospel, chapter 1. This is what he says. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone, Israelites, Syrians, and Canadians, is coming into the world. Now, the language of light, of course, is a metaphor, but behind that metaphor, within that image, is something concrete enough to touch, someone who is hugged, someone that you can embrace. His name is Jesus. And Christians are simply people who know that he's still with us, that he's still here to help. Just like John says, for from his fullness we receive grace upon grace. You see, Jesus came not just to tell us about seeing but rather to give us sight, which is why by St. John he is called the light. The light of God, Jesus Christ, continues to bring a vision of reality that defies and gloriously overshadows the pathetic ones to which we so often cling because we can't imagine anything else. But it doesn't have to be that way. Are you tired of the darkness? I hope so. To live in the light of God means that your future will be better than your past, and it means that our future can be better than our present. That's why Christians have long sung these words from Advent, which I take from the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Come, Desire of the Nations, bind into one the hearts of mankind, bid our sad divisions cease, and be yourself our King of Peace. When you begin to perceive who Jesus is, what he offers, what he represents, I suspect that the words of 2 Kings 6, verse 19, will begin to resonate with you in a new way. And Elijah said to them, follow me, and I will bring you to the man that you seek. The offer stands. Do you see?